This is an audiobook production of Fearless Features. Interview with the abortionist, read by the author Mark Archer. This audiobook was originally published as a four-part blog series, which is also available as an ebook from fearlessfeatures.org. Copyright 2020, all rights reserved. Interview with the Abortionist, Part 1. I must have walked 20 laps around our home office, through my office, into the kitchen, down into the family room, turn around and circle back through the front hallway and then through Amber's office, returning to my desk once more. I had that feeling of extreme dread, like when you know you have to break up with someone, or that they're about to break up with you, coupled with that feeling of severe danger. Every time I would circle past my desk, I would stare at my phone, and it would stare right back at me. There was no doubt about it. I knew I had to talk to this man. I just didn't want to. Before I had taken my three-year sabbatical from film production, Amber and I had gone down one morning to stand with the protesters and the sidewalk counselors outside the abortion clinic on Inwood Drive on a procedure day. Standing there with our then-newborn oldest daughter, Elizabeth, watching women pull into the parking lot and walk into that clinic to pay abortionist George Klopfer to dismember and murder their baby. I was struck by the surreal setting of a modern-day Auschwitz on one side of the street and a gospel-preaching Baptist church on the other. The width of a city street was literally the only thing separating the living from the dead and the condemned. During World War II, the condemned were brought in by trains and unloaded into the gas execution chambers at gunpoint. This day, the condemned were brought in by car, safely inside their mother's wombs, and protected by law for the sole purpose of their execution. This is a movie. I remember thinking to myself that very day, and it would be called Inwood Drive. It's good versus evil, separated only by the width of a city street. And with that trip, back in the spring of 2010, the script was written. It would be another eight years, however, before that story, filed away in my mental file cabinet, would be revived and put into production as Amber and I were preparing ourselves for the imminent arrival of our third daughter, Caitlin. I don't doubt that Babies on the Brain contributed to our decision to put Inwood Drive into development in July of 2018. But for certain, we did it because we knew the Lord was directing us to do it. Of all the film projects I've ever done in 30-plus years of a career in filmmaking, I've never been more sure of any film in my life. Now, this day, I found myself staring once again at the phone, contemplating the phone call to George Klopfer, the infamous abortionist himself, to offer him the opportunity to be interviewed for a feature film all about him and his eventual downfall. Trying to put aside my feelings, 
towards a man I had never met, but knowing full well what he had made a career of for over as long as I had been alive. I closed my eyes and asked the Lord for strength. Help me to do this, Lord. I know you didn't bring me this far for me to sit on my hands. I opened my eyes and reached for my phone. I never imagined that I would have the personal cell phone number of an abortionist stored away in my contacts list on my iPhone. But there it was. As I pressed the dial button, my heart started to pound. The phone rang. Don't answer, don't answer, don't answer, don't answer, please don't answer. The phone rang some more, then went to voicemail. My pulse dropped a few notches. I, I figured if I left a quick voicemail, there was no way that he would ever call me back. But at least I could say that I tried, and I was off the hook for good. The automated voicemail message beeped. I took a deep breath. Hello, Dr. Klopfer. My name is Mark Archer. I'm a film producer, and I'm working on a documentary feature film about your abortion clinic in Fort Wayne and how you were eventually shut down. Since a lot of this film is about you and your practice as an abortionist specifically, I thought I would reach out to you and see if you would be willing to talk with me. You can reach me back on my cell. And I hit that big red button on the iPhone to hang up. A pause of silence. My heart was still racing. Whew. Okay, done. Glad I got that over with. As the phone lit up and began to ring, my heart dropped as I looked at the caller ID. George Klopfer. Now I have to talk to him. I threw a few punches in the air in frustration. Then I picked up the phone. Fine, whatever. Let's just get this over with. I let it ring one more time, then swiped right to answer. Hello, this is Mark Archer. To my surprise, a pleasant voice came from the other end of the line. Yeah, hi, this is George Klopfa. You just called me. I swallowed hard as I took a deep breath, then launched into Mr. Producer mode. Yeah, Dr. Klopfer, how are you? My name is Mark Archer. I'm a film producer. I'm working on a feature documentary film about you and your abortion business and your battle in Fort Wayne and across the state of Indiana. I wondered if I might ask you some questions. To my total shock, George was one of the more pleasant people I had talked to in such a setting, especially considering the fact that I was telling him flat out that I was making a movie about his demise as an abortionist. I never expected him to call me back, let alone have a pleasant conversation with me about it. After a few minutes of conversation, I asked him if we could sit down with him and talk in more detail because I was really interested in getting his side of the story and letting him speak on his own behalf. He agreed, and we set a time for just a few days away to go to his now defunct clinic in Fort Wayne to have a sit-down conversation with him. Okay, we'll see you on Thursday morning at 9 a.m. then at your clinic on Inwood. Yeah, okay, that sounds fine. Just knock on the door when you get here. I'm happy to talk with you. I hung up the phone again, but this time I stood in silence for a moment. Alrighty then, I guess this project just got real.
When Amber came home a few hours later, I broke the news to her. We both looked at each other for a moment, processed the fact that we were really doing this, and we were really going to go into the den of darkness and talk to the abortionist himself. Amber got excited. You know what? That man needs Jesus. I can't wait to talk to him. Like it or not, he's going to hear the gospel before we leave. And hear the gospel he would. After the two of us faced him down squarely for over an hour. My goal going in to talk to George was simple. What's done is done. I can't change the fact that this man has taken the lives of literally tens of thousands of babies. It's a documented fact, whether I like it or not. As a filmmaker, it is my job to tell the truth and to be objective about doing so. Of course, I have my opinion about what he's done. That's the whole reason I felt compelled to tell the story. But I still must answer to the Lord for my being truthful in everything I put on screen. Being truthful means confirming your sources, and the best way to confirm a source about someone is to talk to that someone. I was determined to give George that chance, whether I felt like he deserved to be heard or not. I'm not going in to see if he can convince me of anything. I would tell the few individuals that we shared the news with before we met with George. I'm going in to let him speak for himself. I may not like him or what he's done, but I'm not going to fabricate stories about him based on conjecture and hearsay. If I do that, I'm no better than Michael Moore or 95% of the media. Whatever my mind can imagine about his reasons for doing what he's done, I imagine it's 10 times worse. And what a prophetic statement that would be. We never could have imagined, however, just how much sadness we would feel for a man like George Klopfer. We never could have imagined just how much our hearts would hurt for how lost and deceived he was and how in need of Christ's forgiveness he truly was. As we prepared ourselves mentally and spiritually for our conversation in just a few days' time, we both could feel the darkness closing in all around us as we prayed fervently for the light of Christ to go before us. We were about to experience the very heart of darkness. Interview with the Abortionist Part 2 We didn't tell very many people about our appointment to interview abortionist George Klopfer for our feature documentary film, Inwood Drive. But the few people we did tell about it were universally shocked by it. Half were shocked that he had agreed to even talk with us. The other half were shocked that we were even giving him the time of day. I would have to say that for my own part, I was kind of in both camps. Transparency is difficult, especially in nonfiction storytelling. There's always the temptation to just fabricate the elements you're missing based upon loosely gathered information and conjecture rather than actual first-hand accounts. Of course, you don't tell yourself you're fabricating things. You use creative language like filling in the blanks or taking some creative license. The problem is it's still inserting what you want to happen where something may or may not have happened. I hear people try to justify it all the time. Well, how do we know it didn't happen that way? <laughs> 
Well, simple. You don't know it happened that way or at all. In other words, you're making it up, and that's called a lie. Former CBS investigative journalist turned independent investigative journalist Cheryl Atkinson, in her book Stonewalled, described herself and her role as a journalist as being necessarily politically agnostic. And I like that term a lot. In other words, she keeps her political opinions to herself and doesn't let her personal viewpoints on individuals or subject matter affect her objectivity with a story. It's a lonely place to be when people know that you're only driven by the truth. I dare say it makes a lot of people nervous to even be around you because they know they're not going to be able to contain you or steer you in a certain direction. Friends or not, if you're hiding something from a truth seeker, they're really not going to cut you any slack. They only want the truth. I make it a point in my work to remain politically agnostic as well. Anyone who knows me or even follows my work will be able to quickly ascertain where I stand on most things, but I purposely don't push parties or platforms or politicians. I push truth, wherever that leads me. Sometimes my digging makes even my friends nervous. Pursuing an interview with the abortionist himself made even some of our financial supporters nervous. But not to make the effort would be dishonest to telling a thoroughly researched story. Especially when you're telling a story that largely centers around one person, you must talk to that person, if at all possible. Anything less is disingenuous at best, if not propagandist in nature. You could say I have a unique perspective on the abortion issue since I was born in 1973, the same year the U.S. Supreme Court made it legal to dismember me with surgical instruments and pull me out of my mother's womb in pieces. I was also born in the state of New York, the same state that just made it legal to kill babies like me even after we're born. To be going in to have a civil discourse with a man who had been murdering my generation, since he could do it and not be imprisoned, gave me a particular sort of creepiness that seemed to run up and down my spine for days. Here I was, getting ready to go in and talk to a man who no doubt would have murdered me for money in 1973 if I were but part of another family and another life. Why do I even care to give this man an opportunity to speak to me? I would think to myself over and over again, I know all I need to know about him from decades of publicly available information in the press. He's denied tens of thousands of children their own voices. Why does he now get to be heard? I would console myself with the reminder of whose film this is in the end, and who gets to make those editorial decisions as to who stays in the final cut and who doesn't. To say that I was going in to let him tell his side of the story would be wrong. I already know his side of the story. He's an abortionist. He murders babies. What I don't know is what makes a man like him do what he does without remorse. If I can get to at least a basic understanding of that, I can tell a truthful story. Every villain needs a backstory, even if it's George Klopfer. The morning of our interview, Amber and I got up together at our usual time, around 3.30 a.m., to read scripture together and to pray. We're both early risers because we found with three young children that if we don't take our time together in the morning, 
to be with each other and the Lord. It tends to not happen later. We read together and prayed together, and particularly, we prayed for George. We had no idea who we were going to encounter that day, only that we were talking to a man who has been deceived his entire life, literally doing the work of Satan. We asked the Lord to go before us and surround us as we entered this gateway of darkness at the very edge of hell itself. When we pulled up to the door, his crashed up Mercedes sat out front. Even though his practice at this particular location had been defunct since the end of 2013, George still owned the clinics that he operated in Fort Wayne, South Bend, and Gary. But as far as we could tell, the Fort Wayne clinic was the only one that he still visited weekly. Driving in on a Wednesday night, sleeping in the clinic, and then leaving again on Thursday morning. You see, Thursdays used to be his procedure days. And the fact that he still came in and slept in a clinic that had been closed since the end of 2013 is nothing short of macabre, especially when you see the filth that surrounds it and indwells it. We walked up to the door and I knocked. There was no answer and no response or movement from inside the dark clinic. We looked at each other and shrugged. I knocked again. This time I pounded on the glass. I could already feel my blood pressure starting to rise. This is going to be over before it even began, I thought to myself. Maybe he's changed his mind, I said as I looked at Amber, admittedly hopeful that we could just turn around and leave. Amber suggested I try to call him. I found him once more on my phone and dialed his number. It rang, it rang, it rang. Voicemail. I hung up. Amber stepped forward and pounded even harder on the glass door. Suddenly, we saw movement from inside. It was George. I had never met him before, but I had seen plenty of pictures of him. He shuffled over to the door and squinted through the glass. Morning, George, I said to him through the thick glass door. We had an appointment this morning at 9 a.m. to talk to you about our documentary film. He looked like he had literally just woken up. As he acknowledged us and unlocked the door, I reached out my hand to shake his and introduced Amber and myself once more. You want to talk here or sit down at the table? With his thick German accent, he was surprisingly cordial to us. I could sense that he was a bit nervous with us. Individually, Amber and I tend to have a tendency to do that to people. Together, intent on a mission and surrounded by prayer, we must have freaked him out. We weren't there to try to intimidate, but we were there for the truth. And neither of us was leaving that place until we got it. As we all sat down in what looked like the break room, Amber set her phone on the table and started the recorder. You don't mind if we record this, do you? George just looked and shrugged and said, no, it's fine. I explained the film premise to him once more, then looked at him and said, so tell me about yourself. How did you get to where you are now? In the years leading up to this film, I had heard what I thought were probably exaggerated stories about him and his coming out of Germany as a child. One of the harder to believe stories floating around had him surviving an allied bombing raid as a child in World War II and later swearing to kill as many American babies as he could as revenge for what he saw and endured. I had largely dismissed it as biased conjecture passed on through the ranks of pro-life picketers through the years, 
So many stories like that are, they're like urban myths, fabricated out of loosely gathered information, and they're nearly impossible to verify. You know you're hearing a red flag story when it starts out with, I once heard that, fill in the blank. But I had come in with an open mind to listen to his life story. I knew that no one had likely bothered to even listen to him tell his story. Even those liberal media members through the years who covered up his crimes while they supported his practice. If there's one thing I know about people who have lived a life of notoriety, it's that they believe the world needs to hear what they have to say. There was a pause. I leaned back in my chair and looked at George. I want to hear your story, George. When did you start down this career path? Another pause as George looked at me over the top of his glasses. Then at Amber. He let out a long sigh. Never could we have imagined the sad and twisted life story that was about to unfold to us over the next hour. To my shock and horror, it all began for him at the age of six, living in Dresden, Germany, living through the Allied firebombing raids of 1945. Interview with the Abortionist Part 3 The fluorescent light fixture in the ceiling above us buzzed. You know that sound old fixtures make when they're about to start flickering like a prop from a horror movie? Inside the dimly lit, cluttered clinic break room, Amber and I sat at a small round table across from the most prolific abortionist in the history of the state of Indiana who still came to his defunct clinic once a week and spent the night in the basement. He hadn't been allowed to perform abortions in this building since the end of 2013, yet here he was. I looked around the room, my heart sinking inside me as I thought of the nonchalant conversations that must have taken place in this very room between the nurse executioners and the clinic escorts as they wolfed down their lunches, complaining about politics and spouses and talking about their weekend plans. All the while, baby after baby, safe and warm inside their mother's womb, is being unwittingly led down the hallway to be executed, and their bodies discarded in a red medical waste bag. Their only crime? Being conceived and being an inconvenience before they can even cry out for help. Abortionist Klopfer sits across the table. I've just opened the door for him to spill his guts to us or vent his rage. We're not sure what to expect, but we're both fairly certain that we're not what he expected at all. As the recorder listens intently to every bit of noise in the room, transcribing it into a slowly moving waveform across its illuminated screen, what we're going to hear from him is still a mystery. But any fear that Amber and I had coming in is quickly fading for both of us. The raging, terrifying monster I expected to meet instead looks like nothing more than a lonely old man who spent the night on a park bench. If it weren't for the stark knowledge of just who and what he was, I would have almost felt sorry for him. 
like I should have offered to help him carry his groceries to the car or something. As he ran his hands through his gray, tussled hair, he looked over his smudged eyeglasses at us both. Let me put it this way. Mm -hmm. In 1945, I was with my aunt in the suburbs of Dresden. In February of 1945, in between the Americans and the English, they firebombed Dresden Mm. for three days and two nights. Uh, The death toll varies depending upon who you want to believe. The Allies say it was 40 to 50,000. The Germans said somewhere about 100,000. The German government at that time said it was 150,000. Americans POWs who were in trains at the train station got killed by the bombing. Uh, and the woman's church, Frauenkirche in German, which was destructed by the bombing, and the East German government would not allow it to be rebuilt because as a memento of the horrendous thing that happened. After the Berlin Wall fell down and Germany reunited, in 1994, they decided to rebuild the woman's church. And when they did that, in the basement, they found dead bodies from World War II. Okay? Uh, in 1945, 46, 47, when the Russians were where we lived at that time, the Russian soldiers were driving through the fields with the AK-47s, shooting at anything and everything with no disregard for anybody. Uh, The house across the street from us was destroyed in the bombing, not in the Dresden bombing, another bombing. And most of that family got killed. So uh, the effects of the war probably may have not had a positive impact on my perception. Okay, but uh, on your perception of of what of human beings, what they do to each other, and in that moment, I don't think there could have been anything more ironic and tragic at the same time. The abortionist himself responsible for conceivably at least ten thousand lives, probably more, talking about how World War Two changed his perception of what people can do to each other. And I wondered to myself if this man even hears himself when he talks. He started to describe his early years in practice in Chicago and the first abortion he ever performed. With a long sigh, George started in with his twisted tale of self-justification. The bottom line is, and here's my philosophy, it always has been my philosophy, Women should have the right to choose. Mm -hmm. Women get pregnant, men don't. Mm -hmm. If men got pregnant, we wouldn't be talking about this, okay? Now, and one of the reasons that really confirmed uh, my motivation was when I was at the hospital in Evanston, I had a 12-year-old girl Mm -hmm. that was raped by her uncle. She was 21 weeks pregnant, and I had to do the abortion in the hospital, okay? Mm -hmm. 
that didn't bother me. What bothered me is that her dad and mother wouldn't prosecute the uncle for raping her, their daughter. Okay? We all have to look at one thing. The concept that if a woman gets raped and she gets pregnant, that she'd be forced to have the child if she chooses not to, to remind her every day of what transpired is wrong. Wow. I mean, there's a lot to analyze there. It took us some time after our meeting to fully process everything he said. I mean, first, here he is, admitting that his very first in-utero murder was a 21-week-old baby. Later in the conversation, directly contradicting himself, he would insist that he never performed abortions past the first trimester. By his own admission, that first abortion on a 21-week-old wasn't what bothered him at all. Wait a minute, stop. Aborting a 21-week-old baby is not scraping some clump of cells out of a woman's uterus. A 21-week-old baby in the womb has eyes, fingers, toes, ears, a heartbeat, brainwaves, and can survive outside of the womb. So the very first time George did this, he reached inside a 12-year-old girl with surgical instruments ripped that baby's arms and legs off, probably beheaded it after puncturing the baby's skull and letting the brain and its fluids drain out, and then threw the baby's dismembered corpse into the biohazard waste bin to be thrown out with the rest of the surgical garbage. And that's not what bothered him. What bothered him, he said, is that the girl's parents protected the child molester, who happened to be the girl's uncle, by not reporting the crime. There are so many more tragedies in this story that it's really hard to know where to start. I mean, first, a 12-year-old girl who is molested and impregnated by a family member is a, a terrible, unthinkable crime. That young girl, who would now be a grown woman close to 60, has been living with that trauma her entire life. She has also been living with that regret of having lost her first and maybe only child at the hands of a man who went on to murder again thousands of times over. What is so shocking and ironic in this part of the tale is that George sent three girls that we know of back into the exact same situations. He did exactly the same thing to not one, not two, but three young girls, all 13 years of age, performing abortions on these 13-year-olds, then sending them right back into the same situation that got them pregnant in the first place without reporting it to Child Protective Services. And in Indiana, abortionists are required to report to CPS any procedures done to any girl under the age of 14, as there is quite likely a child molester involved. George purposely did not report the underage girl's situations to the authorities, who likely would have stopped further abuse. In fact, it was this non-reporting that, once discovered, quickly unraveled his abortion practice and eventually resulted in his license being permanently suspended in the state. So this very thing that he described seeing happen to a 12-year-old girl in Illinois in 1974 that supposedly made him so angry at the injustice of it all, where a young girl was raped by her uncle, then sent back with no legal repercussions for the rapist, 
is exactly the thing that George himself facilitated three times. No, George didn't perpetrate the rapes. He just took care of that whole pregnancy thing, then covered up the crime by not telling anyone about it who could go after the perpetrators. In fact, the 13-year-old girl in Fort Wayne whose abortion George purposely did not report to the authorities until months later, well, her mother subsequently did report the situation to the police, and the girl's 19-year-old assailant was arrested and charged with two counts of child molesting. I couldn't stop myself. I had to call him out. You said that the thing that got you, that really tipped you into this was a girl who was 12, who was mm -hmm. raped by her uncle. Yeah. But that was many, many years ago. That was in the in the 70s. Yeah, that but, these, but these are girls that are 14, who were or under 14, who were in the same situation. And, the, and the, you could have you could have done something fine. to help them. And there were two there were two girls in the state of Indiana where I didn't send the foreman in a proper time. And for my memory, I can't tell you what the ages was right now at mm -hmm. this point. In all honesty, I'm just telling you, mm -hmm. I don't I don't remember whether it was one under fourteen. I think maybe the girl from Gary uh, could have been fourteen. Okay, but uh, and the girl from. South Bend, I don't know what her age was. But in both cases, the mother was with the, with the daughter. They, were, they weren't brought in by a, a complete stranger. Uh, Again, no different from the case in Chicago. Case in the girl China. who was raped by her uncle was brought in by her parents. Right, right. yes, yeah. So, right. yeah. I'm just, I'm trying to see where the, where the difference is. That case, that First case in Because the state of Illinois didn't have a, a requirement that I had to report. It's not, but but you said that it, it didn't have anything to do with that. You said that that ticked you off. It ticked and, me off because the parents wouldn't prosecute the uncle. Yes. Yeah. So, but here's here's a, a situation where in the state of Indiana, they've put a regulation in place that you I that, didn't follow. Absolutely. That you didn't follow. It. Right. But yes. if you had followed that, wouldn't that maybe? Do you think maybe those girls got sent back into that situation again? I, I honestly can't tell you. I don't know what the state does when a girl underage gets raped and has an abortion, what the state does. And that's all the more answer we ever got out of George on that matter. But the sparks hadn't even started to fly yet. You see, before going in to talk with George, I had read every single court document, report, and transcript I could get my hands on to make sure that I had the official, documented version of the story committed to memory. I also had every bit of that documentation in my massive three-ring project binder sitting on the table in front of me. George wasn't going to get away with showing up with his own set of facts because I already had all of those. What George didn't anticipate was what would happen when Amber locked on target and backed him into a corner. George was not going to get out of this room with his lies intact. Amber was going to make sure of that. Interview with the Abortionist Part 4. George was starting to get agitated with both of us. We both sat and let him talk for a good 25 minutes straight, only interrupting him from time to time to ask questions for clarification. 
We hadn't yet really started to debate him on things, and that really wasn't our intent. Our intent when we came in was to try to understand his story and background, then ask him tough questions in a fair but direct manner. It didn't take long, though, before we both started interrupting him regularly to challenge him on his, how shall I say, divergence from reality, trying to justify his argument that life only begins when a baby can be born and survive on his or her own outside the mother's womb. <sighs> George strolled right into the line of fire from Amber. Life does not begin at conception. A fertilized egg in a test tube is not a life. It's a fertilized egg in a test tube. My body is not a test tube. Amber slapped the table and leaned in. George recoiled and collected himself. I understand that, but you're saying <laughs> life begins at conception. And if I take an egg and put a sperm in a test tube and, and, and the sperm fertilizes the egg, it's not a life. George slapped the table as he raised his voice even further. Amber came right back at him. You know as a doctor that women's bodies are designed that way to carry these children. To, to, to let the fertilized egg develop in your uterus, to become a fetus. And to then become to be, a child. To become a child. And right. then to be Thank born. You. Yes. And, and, and the point is, at conception, until a fetus is viable outside the uterus, in my book, in that's not book. a life. I was still watching in amazement as my beautiful bride not only faced off with George, but fired right back at him in rapid succession. I honestly don't think he had any idea what to make of her. Amber stared him down for a moment. Do you believe you, 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 what, you, you, what? Do you believe that what you what you've done is right? Do you believe it in your I, heart? In the I, hardest, yes. I gave the, the women. I gave, I gave the women the choice to make a to make the choice whether to choose to have an abortion or whether to have the child. Mm -hmm. Okay, whether it's the right choice or the wrong choice. Have you asked know. for forgiveness for for killing children? Have you asked for forgiveness no, for killing I for I a sin? Kill children. You you don't. No, your, your, your conception and my conception when life begins is different. You know that in the womb and in the mother's body that it's a baby. No, it's a fetus. In that moment, I pondered the gravity of what I had just heard. And see, I came into this conversation expecting a discussion of logic. And instead, what I was hearing was a game of semantics. You know, semantics. It's very simple. Just change the words. Just call it something else. Redefine the terminology. It's not a baby, it's a fetus. All right, there. Now, now we can feel better about removing that unwanted growth, that fetus, and moving on with our lives. See how easy that was? But Amber didn't come in to debate semantics. She came in to share the gospel with George. The Lord is so forgiving to all of us. When we get to heaven and we choose Joseph Stalin, Uncle Adolf, and Mussolini. Well, I doubt that gonna, they'll be there. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you're making a judgment. Well. Yeah. The Lord is forgiving. <laughs> the, the, that's right. The Lord is forgiving for those who call on him. Uh, and, and then the bottom line is all we all in life make a choice. I leaned back in my chair to avoid being struck by lightning as this man openly mocked God. Amber didn't let up on him. George hadn't budged even a millimeter in this conversation. He didn't kill children. He removed unwanted fetuses. 
And that is all there is to justification in the mind of an abortionist to taking the life of a child in the womb. In George's mind, it is settled fact that life only begins when the baby is born, or when it is able to survive outside the womb on its own, or at 24 weeks, or was it 20? But that answer depends on which time period of justification we're talking about, because it has shifted, and therein lies the problem, the shifting sands of the argument. The abortionist, just the same as any other humanist, lives by a set of non-specific, ever-shifting non-absolutes. Whenever the equation comes out to an answer they don't like, they simply plug new variables into the equation until they achieve the outcome they desire. The biggest problem with this is that it forces one to completely detach from all absolutes, which is what George did a long time ago. From denial of God to a denial of God's absolutes, to a denial of science, to a denial of reality, there is no way to argue with a man whose absolutes don't exist. As we wrapped up our conversation with George that morning, he shook our hands and showed us to the door, even walking us outside to our car. If it weren't for the fact that we had just been debating his justification for being an abortionist for 40 years, I would almost have said it was a pleasant ending to a strange and strained conversation. I couldn't help but wonder just what he was feeling after having been challenged for over an hour. In the car and halfway down the block, we both felt ourselves start to finally break the tension that had unknowingly gripped us both through the entire meeting. As we drove back to pick up our youngest child, Caitlin, who had literally been born just a few months earlier, I felt a strange sadness coming over me for George. We later confirmed his age to see if he could indeed have lived through the Dresden bombings. It checks out. And I think that makes me the most sad for him. Maybe it's lifelong symptoms of PTSD. Maybe he had a terrible home life. Whatever it was, or maybe a combination of things, it made that young boy grow up to be a man who had a big dead spot inside. Unable to see the Lord's creation for what it truly is, he sank further and further into a world that destroyed his soul and never let him out of its grasp. And for that young boy, I feel empathy. As we told people over the next few days and weeks about our conversation with George, we repeated one thing above all else. We asked people to please pray for George and others like him. I am grateful that he had been stopped from his awful practice but I hurt for the man who had been destroyed by the murderous work that he had done his entire life. What hope is there for an ex-abortionist who has been abandoned by all? No longer useful to the abortion industry, why would they even have anything else to do with him? I pondered for weeks after our meeting, why on earth George would still come every week to his clinic, only to turn around the next morning and go home again. There were many possibilities that I envisioned, but one thing was for certain. George was lonely. We could tell that just by how much he was willing to talk with us. And loneliness is something that I can certainly understand. So I prayed even more for George, that hopefully one day he would remember that the Lord is forgiving, even to a repentant abortionist. This concludes this audiobook. Thanks for listening. Be sure to visit InwoodDriveMovie.com to purchase your copy of the documentary film Inwood Drive. 
Also watch for the companion book to the film, also entitled Inwood Drive, with many more stories like the one you just heard, documenting the production of one of the most definitive films on the subject of abortion. Well, thank you for your time, sir. Okay, you're welcome. Thank you. So, do you have a baby boy? We, had, we have three girls. Oh, three girls. Oh, wow. <laughs> we lost two, but have our three girls. Okay, good. <laughs> that, that's fine. Yeah. You know, hey. The Lord has a plan for us all. My oldest brother, he was always the boss, and I was the worst child of all seven, because uh, when I came home, my mother used to beat the on me, and then my dad, when he came home from work, I did get a second helping. <laughs> so. It's too bad, sorry. No, 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 no. You know what about life? When you get older, you look back, and you can enjoy the good and the bad.